How's it, everyone? Welcome to Let's Talk Digital with me, Audrey Naidu. On this podcast, you will find uniquely South African digital content brought to you from a local perspective across the industry. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to Let's Talk Digital, another nail-biting episode. Today, we're going to talk about performance marketing. As South Africans, we know that performance marketing has been gaining momentum in the last couple of years. And I have a guest in the studio today. He's Wayne Bishop, MD of PhD Media, part of the Omnicom Group. Uh, welcome, Wayne. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. I like, I like talking all things media. So this is going to be fun. Yeah, it's great to have you with us. Today, like I said, we're going to be talking about performance marketing. And I know that um, your agency does a lot in the performance marketing uh, sphere. Maybe if you can tell us what's going on in performance marketing. Sure. So there's, uh, yeah, so our agency is doing about 32, 33% of our billings now is in the digital space. And um, of that, I'd say performance marketing is, is coming up to half half now. Um, it might just be the composition of clients that we have. So we have financial services in, in Liberty and Stanlib. Um, and of course, we have, um, we have VW, which is a big performance uh, marketer. Um, but then on the other side, we with, with Unilever, there's very little performance. It's probably about 10, 10% of the total pot. But I think uh, it, it is a big trend. I think all of the media owners are coming out with their, their own data-driven marketing products. So you can now do precision marketing across uh, various trade desks. You can obviously do it on, uh, on the social media platforms. Um, even on YouTube now, you can segment correctly, run different commercials and, and advertising messages against uh, separate groups scaled up to to almost all audiences or, or at least broad audiences. Um, added to that, there's a big talk on e-commerce and how we can drive proper conversions to, to sales. And that's from financial services to FMCG. It's very, very interesting. Um, and so, you know, what I would say is that the highlight, we've been trying this for about a year, year and a half, all these new products, and it's mixed successes. When I run precision campaigns on, on Facebook, I get mixed results. I get recalls spiking slightly with older groups and remaining pretty much flat everywhere else. Um, with e-commerce, we're getting, you know, conversion rates of 20 rand one week and conversion rates of 80 rand the next or conversion numbers of, of 80 rand the next. Um, and so it's been difficult to kind of see what's, what's going on. We, we feel like we've got a handle on it now. Um, but certainly it is a big trend. And, and I'd say that it's driven a lot by the multinationals. Uh, so overseas, if you have a global piece of business, uh, there will be a big focus on e-com precision and data-driven marketing. And so you'll have to kind of borrow as many techniques as are applicable in, in this market. So for those listeners who do not know what performance marketing is, maybe that should be our starting point. Sure. So performance marketing to me is, is about uh, optimizing your digital media spend, or digital advertising um, to a specific outcome. And it's, it's something that's more tangible, like a lead or a sale. Um, or a competition entry or a, or a data entry. Um, it's not more of the softer metric, metrics like recall um, and awareness and consideration. So performance marketing is actually getting a proper outcome uh, off the back of your digital media. Um, and there are various ways to do that. If you if you picture a funnel, uh, at the top of the funnel is where the awareness, the people who are aware of your brand come in, 
as they go down the funnel so you'll get fewer people now considering your business out of the awareness bucket and then underneath that you'll get maybe an interest market who's someone who's happy to fill in a form or show interest or click on a, um, a link that you've got and then off the you know your smallest group then from that entire funnel is the people who actually convert they become a lead they become a sale they put something in their basket online um, and that's pretty much the the, the spectrum of, of what what media does from my experience in performance marketing, it's not as straightforward as doing performance marketing. There's a number of things that the role players are accountable for. And when I say that, what is a role of the brand you are servicing as an agency to make performance marketing work? The, this, is the, this is the major issue. And, and I'll take you back to 2008. So world goes into financial crisis effectively, um, driven by the crash in, in Wall Street and the, and the bond market there. And and what happens in when recessions ensue is that after that, businesses come out a lot leaner and meaner. So they cut staff, uh, they put more accountability executives in positions to make sure it doesn't happen again. And, you know, everybody watches the numbers. And there's some real evidence off the back of this. So if you, if you look at listed company CEOs in the States, um, in 2008, only around about 40 odd, 42, 44%, somewhere around there, of the listed company CEOs had financial backgrounds, in other words, CAs or equivalent. Today, that number is 75%. So what happens is boards rip out their, their leadership team and they put numbers people in place, so CAs, right? And that's almost every business. And I mean, South Africa's generally had quite a high proportion of listed company CEOs with CA backgrounds anyway, but that number's also now in the late 70s and early 80s. And what happens then is you 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 start watching the numbers so closely and the ones that you can you can almost guarantee are everything related to performance marketing. So you get this culture of looking at the bottom line. And that means that your, your marketers, your traditional marketers who think about brand building, they, the culture, that culture is gone. It's all about optimizing behind the bottom line. And it, the, this phrase is, is actually called short-termism. Um, often what will happen, you'll probably see this in your daily, in your, in your daily, in your day job, but You'll, you'll walk into a meeting, um, you'll get budget for a particular product, you'll launch that product, and six weeks later, if it's not delivering, they cut the budget, they stop the product, it's gone. So short-termism is a, is a really bad culture at the moment in industry because it's, it stopped us focusing on what the long-term gains are. And unfortunately, because of performance marketing, because of digital media, you can measure everything. You can kind of stop stuff and start stuff as quick as you, as you feel necessary. But the evidence says a different story. So absolutely, your return on v media investment is much higher on a short-term gain. But your profit is higher on a long-term uh, initiative. Um, and there's been some, some amazing studies off the back of this now. Uh, one thing you'll see is that creative effectiveness has declined massively. So Ken Tomwood Brown's got the same picture. But if you track all of the, the average noting scores from 1982, I think is when they started, Average noting scores from 82 to 2019, and there's just a sharp decline, it trends downwards. And you might argue, oh, that's because of clutter or preferences changing or whatever it is. Actually, it's short-termism. These, these brands are getting a lot more rational in their constructs. So the messages that, that consumers are viewing are very rational. Now, it's almost impossible for a consumer to rationally diagnose every single message and advert that they see to make a decision. So the brain shortcuts, it goes into emotional territories, and very few advertising is emotional-based. Emotional 
So that's the problem. The short-termism has affected creativity. It's affected our media budgets. It's affected where we place that media. Most of it is now uh, in performance marketing with key KPIs and, out and outcomes. And, and the reality is that the, the brands that are still doing brand building work, more emotional messaging, long-form communication, uh, trying to drive associations, forward encoding, all these things are the ones that are actually delivering profit over the longer term. So that's really the, the major issue with, with the market at the moment is there's no real appreciation of how much brand building affects your business. So I think you're going into what is the missing ingredient in performance marketing. Um, and like you said, it's brand building. The issue I'm finding is that we're still busy doing big creative ideas. And then when we landed on digital platforms, that's where it drops off. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a typical symptom of short-termism. Um, you, you might appoint an agency because I've got really great appreciation of creative effect. And often what happens is in the performance marketing channels, um, it gets completely tweaked to very rational, very executional. So in your game, in, in financial services, it goes down to an interest rate, a feature, or a benefit of that product. Never the fact that, you know, this is how it makes your life easier. Or this helps you spend more time with your family. I think that, you know, the, the agencies try, the media agencies certainly try, put more brand building budgets. But in the end, this, this culture of short-termism um, kind of forces you into a very executional mindset, very rational messaging, and very rationally consumed media channels as well, which is a complete danger because if you look at Nielsen's, um, they've, they've got this famous chart from 2016, 2017 actually. Um, they talk about the, the components of ROI. So what, what affects ROI? So 38% of return on investment is now attributed to media decisions. But creative is still just under 50%. It's 47. So half of your, almost half of your effect is how well your creative performs. And 38% of it is then, then uh, media. And the balance is, is, um, is basically the brand. But it's an alarming position to be in is when you know that creative is the single biggest determinant of how successful your campaign and your business is. But yet we don't appreciate it. We go straight into executions. So that seems to be a chronic problem currently. We are not doing enough to find a solution to this problem. In your opinion, where should the conversation start? With whom should it start with? It's a great question because I've started to find that most of my conversations now are not at marketing director level. I sit with GMs, with CFOs, and with CEOs now, and VPs and, and things like that, but on the, on the finance side more than anything else. And... I think if you're if you're a media agency and you haven't invested enough in econometric software or um, media mix modeling, you won't really be able to prove it. So I go straight to these decision makers now. We sit with CEOs and GMs and financial uh, CFOs, and I show them permutations of their category. This is what happens if 50% of your flight is is rational and performance channels. That's the profit you are likely to get. If we tweak it, so we run scenario planning for them, if we tweak it and we make it 80% brand building, 20% um, performance uh, marketing, suddenly your profit goes up by 20, 30, even if it's 5 or 10%, it's still better. And we've done work for Telesure on this. It was actually, it was like, it was the saddest thing. I, I, you might remember the execution, it was called The Notebook. It was a beautiful ad of a, of a boy who helps his mom with some of the tasks. He irons his own shirt, he makes his bed, he washes the dishes. And every time he's, 
uh, he's, he's calculating how much time he spent. And then he says to her, well, I've saved you two hours now. Um, can you come to my, my play? And that ad cost six million rand. It's beautifully shot. It won a couple of awards at Lurie's and it flighted for all of three weeks. And the funny story is, is you had the marketing team begging and pleading with the business to continue flighting that ad. But because the business never saw leads coming in or they saw the leads drop off, they pulled it straight away. Now we ran our model, our media mix model, and we can model anything, but we modeled the effect of brand building messaging on your leads. And if they'd run it just for minimum of six months, the long-term gain was a something like a 27% saving in cost per lead. And we'd actually benchmarked it. It's, it's like 60 to 65% of your money must be spent on this commercial and all of its associations. 40% on your normal lead gen stuff instead of your normal 80% lead gen. And it's crazy. I could prove it to like a 90% um, degree of certainty and the business still didn't do it. Mm. So it was heartbreaking for them. And I imagine that that is a conversation that happens almost every day in the boardroom. My advice to, to clients in a similar position is tests, um, but test on your own data. So what we do on Unilever, for instance, is we run the social media buy now KPI. We run it with a brand building, um, so an awareness generating post and without, and we compare the revenue we've got in the cost per conversion. And basically it's as clear as day. If you run that buy now button with a promoted post, roughly 60, 40, um, your cost per lead is much lower, your cost per conversion is much lower. If you run it on its own, it's much higher. And that makes sense because people aren't aware of the new product or the new feature. So you have to make them aware before they convert, bring them into the funnel. And that's what we're doing. So slowly, 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 each and every campaign. And, and we run, wanna run 100 and, about 128 campaigns a year with Unilever. So small tests like these, they're five or 10 grand at a time. They build up. And once you've done it across enough categories, enough brands, enough situations, enough price points, you get a real feel for what your what your split should be. I think from what you said, there is a huge insight. We are finding that marketing, traditional marketing, is going through a revolution, right? Yep. We're seeing the change, and you are actually igniting the change in talking about experimentation, talking about how do we change the way we market in a different, completely different radical way, which means you don't have a God book or you don't have mm. something to show you You're what right to do. <laughs> and that's, that's what's happening in marketing. Mm. The thing is we have traditional marketers. Yes, they can see the value of it. So there's, there's two observations from what you said. One is that we should step out of campaign mode because campaign yep. mode Put it, puts us in a box and we actually don't see the entire picture. We should have a hybrid approach where we have always on, your brand is always on, you are engaging with consumers, you're connecting with them in a more meaningful way to build the trust and credibility. If you think about the big brands and that we always gravitate to and we insist we want those brands like Nike, Adidas, mm -hmm. all the strong brands globally i mean even if you talk about the new disruptive brands like uber um, netflix let's look at how they're disrupting in the market i'm finding that they are operating in a different way and we need to actually learn from those brands and start to adapt some of those learnings into how we market going forward so the interesting thing is they've realized the value of brand building now so um, google advertises on tv uber advertises on out of home 
Spotify is almost exclusive and out of, uh, exclusively an out-of-home advertiser in this market, as is Netflix. What's happened is all the big tech brands actually advertise on TV in this market alone. Takealot.com is a 123 million rand spender on television. You would go, that's ridiculous. They're a digital native brand. Well, no, they've worked out the power of brand building. There's this phenomenal or this very interesting concept called cultural imprinting. So the question has been asked as, why can't digital media build brands as well as offline and traditional channels? And there's this really great, I wouldn't say it's a sociological theory, but it's it's sort of in that vein. But it says it's it's this idea of cultural imprinting, is that when a billboard for Nike is out in the open, I can see it. And I know that everyone else can see it. So when I buy a pair of Nikes, I have almost acceptance. People accept that this is a well-known brand, that it's a performance brand, and they understand the associations. But if I find something that was served only to me online, I don't know if anyone else has seen it. So if I buy it, I don't know if that brand's going to be accepted. And it's true. You could walk, you could drive into a, a, a or go to a, a, a dinner party or, or a restaurant, and you're wearing a watch no one's ever heard of that brand is almost not accepted in your social circle. So I don't think cultural imprinting is the right word, but it's the start of trying to understand how others perceive brands that you are wearing or you are using versus the ones you use yourself. Now, of course, there's going to be digital native brands that you have to use because they're good utilities. But most of those brands have been built on PR and publicity and word of mouth. So hardly any of them, there's very little evidence to suggest that brands have been built on brand building alone. Most of them, traditional media, word of mouth and publicity. But this, there's this really interesting notion of cultural imprinting, which I'm, I've actually started to research it now to see you know, the components of it and if it's true. But it's a great start. It's a great start to explain why online advertising can't build brands. I think when you mention cultural imprinting, it talks around communities talking about a brand because in the past, brands used to broadcast their message out hmm, to the masses to yep. the masses hmm. and we can no longer do that it's about smaller groups tribes communities bringing in your cultural nuances into the conversation and then influencing the decisions you make in terms of which brand you're going to use in the future yes yeah, so we've i mean mass media still has the ability to target so we're not saying let's sell nappies to people without babies that's crazy or sell a Mercedes-Benz to people who can't afford it. So in that way, um, a billboard has a high degree of wastage. But you'll know that 60% of a particular station has got people in your target audience, so you'll be on that TV station or that radio station. But consequently, you have the you, you have a, this, a similar uh, opportunity to do that in online. The problem is what we do is we over-segment. So you know how Facebook interest targeting works and I mean even ad colonies got got um, a specific sort of travel custom audiences that you could buy financial services gaming etc etc what you do is you you do pick up all the gamers but what about the people who you didn't know bought your product I mean there's a great example with Audi Audi overwhelmingly has volume concentration in the 35 or in sorry in the 45 to to 65 year old buckets globally so online, we always put that demographic in, it's 45 plus. But when we finally pointed out that, guys, that's 48% of your volume, absolutely. But there's 52% of your volume either side of that. So sometimes what we're doing is we over-segment and over-target. And um, 
how we try to handle this as an agency is we're saying to clients, what is traditional media? They go, TV, radio, print. I'm like, we don't know. Promoted post is traditional media. Um, a bumper is traditional media. A, an ad colony uh, video ad is a traditional media. What you have to do is you have to separate tra not traditional media from digital media, traditional media from performance media. And if we get that right, I think that conversation is, is gaining a lot of traction with clients now. They're finally understanding that if I run a TV ad and I run my bumper, that's just part of your video buy. It's not digital versus traditional. You have said something very defining that traditional media, if we if we have to define it, is not only traditional channels, but digital is also becoming now a traditional channel. Yep. So we need to look at new media immersed into old media yep. and what is the role of each because if you talk about performance marketing what you from what i'm hearing you say is digital channels it's not only attributing towards performance marketing yes. it is a media mix yes that actually contributes to that end revenue or return on investment yes correct so so digital media or performance media is always going to be a component of a campaign it can't really run on its own for the for some of the the reasons i, I gave you earlier but agencies can gear themselves around around this um we, we've started to invest in tools that can measure multi-screen planning or um, what you call video neutral planning so your TV buy is now made up probably 10% of, of online video as well, depending on the audience, maybe even up to 20%. And the results are great. So um, Audi is a good example. I think we were the first in the market to, to buy uh, YouTube TrueView, but optimized to smart TVs. So you know you can optimize to a device. We mm -hmm. optimized to smart TVs because there was a need for Audi to be more competitive during prime time. So I said, fine, let's put a time on it. So we'll only flight in the evenings, obviously. And then we'll optimize it towards smart TVs because a fair, de fair proportion of our market owns a smart TV. What happened, net effect, is that we were able to calculate on a normal DSTV package, it's about 173 cost per view on a normal DSTV package. If I just put 10% of my budget to YouTube optimized to smart TVs in prime time, that halves. It I went know. down to about 80, 82, 83, 85 cents, somewhere around there. And of course, Google loved this. They've asked us for the case study and testimonials. And we're like, but guys, this is obvious. This is just multi-screen planning. Um, agencies should be able to do this. So in our flow plans now, if I type in, if I know that I need 120 GRPs a week, um, I have a, just a basic formula that calculates how much of that money needs to go to online video for that target audience. And therefore, I might only be buying 90 ratings on TV versus 30 ratings made up of online video and maybe even digital out of home. That's the next step. But this idea of looking at video as as a as an integrated approach in a traditional sense, this traditional media, is really really helping the client teams understand. And then of course making sure that that is at least at least sixty percent of your spend towards brand building, including the digital channels doing brand building. Um, and then I'd say maximum forty percent in performance marketing. That's where we're getting the best traction at the moment. So you actually can close the loop. It's a TV plus strategy, um, and then you also get incremental reach. 
what frequency yes. where you can tap into different platforms but then you probably could use youtube for conversion and then measure end to end so that's where so that's when our retargeting comes in mm. so we know so we we always frequency cap uh our video and our display advertising very low for the first two weeks because that expands your cookie base when when people eventually click um after that um, we'll take all the data, all the cookie data. We'll merge it with the CRM database if we've got, or if the media owners have custom audiences, we'll merge it with them, or even just lookalike audiences and things like that, and then we retarget. And and I tell you, you know, that's that's pushed our acquisition targets, you know, right over the the the, the sort of um, the goals and the objectives. We're doing very well there, um, and it's a tight market as well. So to show some success has been fantastic. I mean, one of our alcohol advertisers. They dropped their performance marketing right down to thirteen percent, and I caught up with them um, the other day, and they said, "You know what? We hit our, we hit budget for the year, like in twenty nineteen. That's amazing because we spend most of our money on reach. And it didn't matter if it was on TV or on digital; it was still reach, you know. And they, for them, conversion media and performance media is like location. So if there's a promotion going on at a bottle store, um, or some of the e-commerce partners they've got, so you know, ordering from Tops Online, that kind of stuff." So their conversion dropped right down from 20 to 13% and they suddenly hit budget. It's a great case study that, you know. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's about closing the loop, making sure that video neutrality is, is front and center to your campaign and everything else as well. If, you, if you're doing out of home and display and all of that, portion of that's got to be the part that delivers incrementality. And if it doesn't, we cut the channel completely. If there's no incremental reach. If all you get is frequency, we cut. It's also helped a bit because we, 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 we're not we don't really have more than three channels on the schedule anymore um, because incremental reach caps out to three. You'll typically for FMCG have, have TV, uh, online and either radio out of home. And then for other categories, you know, you know, TV, radio, online, TV out of home, online, TV, print online, it kind of, you know, everybody's in our business is spending roughly the, the, the same amount of money on, on, on just those three channels. I want to pause for a moment because the type of work or output that you are talking about cannot be achieved if you don't have the right resource in your team. So let's talk about that and some sure. of your experience with the resource of getting to the point of where you say you've achieved some of these different outcomes. Okay, so there's probably about four components to how we recruit and how we resource. The first one is we look for compatible skill sets or transferable skill sets um, more than just experience. So, give you a great example. In this market, in media, media strategists, planners, digital people are just recycled. They just pop up at different agencies and they rotate. I have hired straight out of university, BCom uh, honors in, eco in, in economics graduates. I have an ex-teacher. I have an ex-engineer, um, two media owners. And these guys are fantastic because they have transferable skill sets. If you're a teacher, especially if you're a math teacher, the arithmetic is in, it's done, you get it. The teachers are great, actually. Um, accountants, and I don't mean qualified CAs, I mean people that have studied BCom accounts and then ended up in, in other fields, they haven't gone all the way to CAs, are fantastic. They interview well, they know how to calculate agency com. Do you know what I mean? They're just embedded in them is all the arithmetic with, with finance. They're also a bit more commercial. Two of the, I've got two clients, uh, two ex-clients, not media clients, they were client clients, brand brand builders. I have a production lady who's also, she's head of digital in one of the departments, who is also an importer, exporter. Um, we even have a hip-hop artist. <laughs> 
So the tra- so what I've looked for is is for specific positions that come up. We will always look to the traditional. You need a campaign manager, great, grab a campaign manager, interview them. But we always put two or three wild cards in there to see. And the idea, and we test them. We say, right, we're going to send you a test tonight. You need to respond on that. And depending on that, you get the job or not. And overwhelmingly, these guys that come from outside the industry are fantastic. So that's the first thing is we don't, we recruit, of course, to some degree from the from the industry, but about 25% of our staff comes from outside the industry, which is great. The second thing is, is that um, what I do is I put task leaders in place because millennial mindset is that I want to be CEO by tomorrow. But millennial mindset is also that I'll stay at a business not for a year or two years or five years. I'll stay t- for the completion of a project. That that idea of delayed gratification is a much bigger motivator for a millennial than it is in a in a zennial and a you know everyone else than it is for a baby boomer. They measure their service in years, and millennials and everyone else measures it in in projects achieved. So that's how structured. So we've got task leaders, we've got uh, managers, we've got very very key outputs on on what these guys need to achieve by when by what date and they're not yearly plans you've got to do this by quarter one or you've got to do this in nine months or you've got to do this in two years and that's kept them so motivated because small goals we're achieving them all the way and that's been quite quite cool so our our staff turnover is about three percent at the moment it's nice and low right then getting these guys now to try different things is this idea of a test mentality so we should publicize this a bit more, but we almost have like a, an incubation lab concept where it doesn't matter where you are and where you come from. We will, we will find a client to test your platform on, whether you are the smallest or the largest. And we always say to clients, 10% or 5% of your budget must go towards test. And that means that our guys are learning and they're learning very fast because they're going, geez, that failed completely. But guess what? Cost us 10,000 Rand. We're really okay with that. The ones that are succeeding, we, we absolutely dial up. And then I suppose the, the, the final thing is, is, is more a vision. Short-termism doesn't have a lot of space for visionaries in, in the market. So what myself and the leadership team have done is to try and put a vision down for, for PhDs to say, listen, guys, what we want to do is we want to be better at the top of the funnel and more creative. What is the role of, of data-driven marketing? It's to provide insights that help you do better at the top end of the funnel. Real appreciation of creativity. So we summarize it in a line that says um, it's uh, data-inspired creativity at the top of the funnel is really what our positioning is. Because if you sort out the top of the funnel, everything else flows from that. And that's also great for the, for the team and the resource because now they know what we're working towards. They don't get caught up in the small stuff. Oh, you know, our cost per lead wasn't great on that platform and, and now it's the end of the world. It's like, yes, but I got you an insight that you can use at the top end of the funnel. That was a crazy thing to do, right? Put yourself out there and get people, teachers. Yeah. Really radical way of looking at how you uh, resource up. And, and like you rightly put it, resources are being uh, recycled across agencies. So I think going forward in terms of how do we actually close off on this performance discussion, what are the key considerations for brands and for agencies going forward? So for, for brands, I think you, you have to get in, into, a, into a test mindset as well, where you've got to test what your right, the correct split is. And those tests have to be ongoing. It can't be I'm doing something for three weeks and then I'm going to base the rest of my five-year plan on those three weeks. It's constant test and learn. 
to to put it into perspective, the Amazon technical and digital team does 200 tests a day. That is, they move the button slightly right. They change a copy. They restructure layouts. They they enhance the algorithm. In fact, that algorithm is changing a hundred times a day, depending on preferences. So the test and learn thing, I think, for brands is the right way to go. And off the back of that, you have to appreciate creative output. It is the number one determinant of ROI. So you have to get good at evaluating creative and making sure that you give it enough enough of a push, enough money behind your creative executions. On the media agency side, you have to invest in, in um, analytics. Um, so I think data science, a data scientist is a, a must. Um, it's hard to get there because the market's still underdeveloped here. In the UK, there's 20 data scientists lining up for every job. Here, there's one. Um, we're fortunate that we have a data scientist. Um, but but the idea is that the, the data science and analytics team will tell you how your tests are performing better than than sometimes than your brand team um, because they really do analyze it from from every angle so I think for both brand and agency appreciate creative definitely try and give it the time in the sun but the test and learn mindset needs to be a culture and it needs to be backed up with tools systems and data on both sides um, but but this point about about short-termism agencies I think can can really help businesses understand long-term brand building if they sit with CEOs and GMs because that's where this culture of short-termism is coming from anyway. But maybe we try to do it as an industry as well. We need to produce enough reports and articles and thought pieces on creative at the top end of the funnel. That might, might really help. So, Wayne, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I love the stimulating conversation today. Thank you, man. That was awesome. Thanks for tuning in today. Massive shout-out to the Infinity Media team in Santon in sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to follow my Instagram handle at TalkDigitalZA. Comment on this week's episode. Share your ideas and who knows, you could feature on the next one. 